Hey, it's Travis, and I apologize if my intro for today's or this week's podcast doesn't make a lot of sense, but um, just a quick update. Uh, Baby Grace and my son is five days old as I'm recording this, and uh, his mom and I are just ecstatic to be his mom and dad, and he's been a great kid since we got him home. Um, First night, he got whisked away to the NICU, and it was kind of a scary moment, but he rebounded quickly from meconium in his lungs and he uh, had some jaundice, but that all resolved. And we just had his pediatrics appointment today and he's eating well, he's peeing, he's pooping, he's happy. And we're, we couldn't be happier. And I honestly, whatever I thought fatherhood would be or what it would feel like, it's uh, exceeded every single one of my expectations. And honestly, I love this little dude more than life itself. And it, um, yeah, it definitely, it gives you a sense of purpose unlike any other you've had before. And so I'm just pumped to go on this journey with him and with Paris and it, you know, I'll talk more about that in in future podcasts, but it, it feels appropriate that David Moscow is my guest today because a lot of the things we talk about in this episode really involve looking at the big picture. He is an actor. You may remember him from Big. He was Josh Baskin, the younger version, to Tom Hanks' adult version. He is also a producer and host of the FY series From Scratch. And, you know, my last podcast with my good friend, the Reverend Bernie Dorsey, was a hopefully meaningful conversation trying to break down where we stand with race relations in America, um, this divide. But with today's podcast, it's it's really looking towards the future and the kind of future that, that we would love for our kids to live in. And his series from scratch really goes about um, an adventurous pursuit of making all of your meals or his meals from scratch. He goes on location and figures out local cuisine and he he literally goes and sources the food, whether it be himself in a <laughs> getting the fish with his um, at times seemingly bare hands and then cooking it. Um, the purpose being that we've become so separated from our food chain here, not only in America, but across the world. So when we eat something, we don't really think about where it comes from and whether we're eating meat, fish, or vegetables, we often forget that these come from either the land, the sea, or somewhere in between. And things like climate change, these are very real issues that will very likely impact my son, Grayson, as well as um, us. And these are important things to think about. And I will, without getting way too deep here, because I'm feeling philosophical as a new father. But when I was younger and I lived in the Midwest, I grew up in the Midwest and I was a pretty smart kid, did well in school, but I wouldn't say I was particularly enlightened. I don't think I particularly had a, um, a mind that had fully developed in terms of its perception of life and things. And, you know, I, I do think I've been blessed since being a young kid in the Midwest to have a lot of life experiences and along the way to have opened my mind. And I see the world now and I, and I 
feel like I have a pretty good perspective on it. I don't want to sit here and pretend like I have a, you know, more knowledge than anyone else, but I see a lot of naysayers out there when it comes to things like climate change. I see a lot of naysayers out there when it comes to things like, um, that, that we still have racial inequalities. I see a lot of naysayers out there that think the status quo should always be maintained, even though that can be one that not only excludes individuals, but maybe excludes future babies from inhabiting this earth when it comes to things like climate change. And so um, without digging deeper into that, my thoughts have just really, as of the last few nights, I've been thinking about my boy and the kind of world that we're going to leave him. And that involves hopefully a world where everyone gets along, but more importantly, we have an earth that hasn't overheated, where oceans haven't flooded our shores, and where food is sourced in a way that is sustainable. And today's episode digs into some of that. But again, we taped this, or actually, I didn't mention this, we taped this way back in February. So if things feel out of date, just keep in mind that this was taped many months ago um, before so, and so much has transpired since then, um, not only on a global scale or a national scale, but for me, certainly on a personal scale. But I hope you enjoy this interview with David Moscow. I really enjoyed the opportunity to sit down and get to know him better. Just really quickly. Uh-oh. So I see this picture. Yeah. And I'm thinking, I need whatever skincare products David is using. <laughs> when was that from? This is. Uh, he has like he has no wrinkles. This is, I'm looking at a picture right now of David from when he was younger. You're calling me out on this. This is five years ago. This is before a child and before I travel around the world. <laughs> and I, I want to get into all of that before and they tr- did a shock and awe campaign on my on my body. I cannot. I can't wait to get into that. So my goal with with this podcast is all about sharing interesting information that can help people hopefully either change something they're doing, improve mm. their lives. And, and I think your story is so intriguing. So um, in all fairness, I I know you, but I don't know you. I'm meeting you in person for the mm-hmm, first time. Mm-hmm. And for anyone listening, you probably know David as well. And I know you're mm. probably sick of hearing this, no, but no. David is best known for his role as Josh Baskin, the young Tom Hanks mm-hmm. in the hit film, Big. Yeah. And so I want to go on a big journey today with you. I want you to tell me, going back to that period of time, when you're 12 years old mm-hmm. and you are in this movie with Tom Hanks, who's a great guy, met him, great guy, right? Mm-hmm. And you then become probably recognizable everywhere you go at the age of 12. Yeah. Yeah, most certainly. What, what's that, that was, like, being at that, 12? At, at that period of time, you know, that was the biggest film of the year was nominated for Academy Awards. And and it certainly like, you could tell that it was uh, on its way to being a classic. And that was the second audition I had ever had. So I was not an actor at that point. In fact, Penny remembered that kid from the Bronx because she was from the Bronx. And so um, initially it was Robert De Niro, Penny Marshall, it was not Hanks. And I just went in to play the other friend, Billy. Um, And then waited six months and Penny, when they got Hank, she said, what about that kid from the Bronx? And I looked like Hank. So they brought me in and, and I got it. And so it was sort of like, I came from a family that we didn't have a TV. Um, my parents are like, were very progressive, radical lefties and there was no TV. And uh, so I didn't really know, I think I had been to like three movies at that point, Fantasia, 
I think I had seen Star Wars in camp and uh, Indiana Jones. And those so were- then how did you, if you didn't have a TV, how did you even have an interest in acting? We found uh, my teacher, my, my teacher says it was my teacher. My mom says it was my mom found a clipping in a local newspaper for an open audition for this Jody Foster film where they were looking for kids. And me and my buddies went down on our bikes to the local community college and uh, auditioned. And just for fun, just for fun. And then they called my mom up and I came home and I was like, I did great. <laughs> my mom's <was> like, uh-huh. <laughs> and, uh, but then they called her and said, you know, is he available? And that was my first audition. And we actually turned it down because my parents, we didn't have a lot of money. My parents had already uh, bought like a vacation to visit my aunt who was living in Spain at the time. And and there was no like, couldn't get your money back. We're going to Spain. So we went to Spain. But when I got back, they had given my name, the casting directors had given my name to an agent who was at the time like the, um, J. Michael Bloom was the top child agency in New York. And uh, so I went in and they said, we have a, we're going to test you out. We're going to send you in on this one audition. And that was for the movie Big. That's a pretty big audition to land. So Not too shabby right off the bat. Well, and and so <clears throat> I I would guess that the reason you were really good at acting was because you weren't acting. You were probably just being authentic. Because when you if you watch too much TV and what I've learned out here in Hollywood when I'm here is that the best actors are the ones who you don't even know they're acting. So and, you and were, they stay, you just they were, stay real. Yeah. yeah. So you probably just rolled in there like, Hey, I'm, yeah, I'll do this. Okay, cool. I was a very like uh, boisterous little uh, 12 year old and that, that worked, you know, if you stay in the business longer, you actually have to learn the tools and you actually have to like figure some stuff out. Um, but there is a funny story about that time after it exploded so I became very good friends with uh, Jared Rushton, who played Billy, my best friend in the movie. And I got a television series right after that out here. And he lived here in LA and I didn't know anybody but him. So every weekend I would go down to the OC and be hanging out with Jared. So we would go to the mall and it was basically like Josh and Billy were really best friends hanging out. All, and at this point, what are you, are you 13 at this point? Yeah, people, well, no, this is after the film has come so out. So you're, what? 14, 15 okay. at that point. So, so we, we were blowing people's minds left and right. Like the kids from Big are actually really good friends and actually hanging out like in Orange County every weekend. It's like a Hollywood script, which I love. <laughs> but I do want to ask you how that affected you at that young age, because I, look, I had never been in front of a camera. I did not audition. I was 33 and I left an ER shift with some buddies and had dinner. And then a casting director came up to me. And the reason I am sitting here, you may not even know this, is I. it was a casting director for The Bachelor. This is so many years ago. I can barely oh, wow. remember. I was like, oh, I can't do that. I'm an ER doc. Yeah. And then I was with all my ER colleagues. They're like, um, uh, we should look into this. And a month <laughs> later I was in Paris and I was the bachelor back in the day oh, before there was social media and everything else. <laughs> oh shit is right. We can, you can curse in oh, this okay, format. Okay. Oh, We're not shit. on daytime TV. <laughs> Here I am 33. I go again. This is before there's any streaming. This is back when it's just network television. And I came back and I'm an ER doc and I go work my first shift after the show premieres and all of a sudden, I can't go out in public anymore. It's like, I- that's also one of the biggest shows in the world. It was crazy. Yeah, and I'm trying yeah. to figure out, so I had to put on my on my house, 
that I was living in. And we had to put black um, cardboard on all the windows because people were coming and trying to look through the windows and people were coming into the ER. Um, women were coming in with breast pain. It was a very <laughs> awkward time. And <laughs> my wow. point is only that I didn't, I didn't know what to do. And I was 33 yeah. and I, I struggled with it for a long time because you're going to the ER and you go see a patient and they recognize you and you don't know them. It was very hard for me it's to always balance. A so bit, how yeah. did you at the age of 12 handle that? And then continuing through your teenage years and now you're a grown up. how did you deal with being that famous, quite frankly, mm-hmm. and then Everyone knows in fame, it's, there's ebbs and flows. Yeah, and yeah. You Depending know, on the year. Depending upon well the year. Depending on the year. Um, well, I think first off, there, there are two things, I've thought about this a bit, and there are two things that kind of like, uh, two ways I, I end up thinking about it. One is I, had a, I have a very strong family um, connections, uh, my mom and dad and my brother. No one's in the business. Um, and also my extended family, you know, I have a bunch of cousins. And- so I was always, um, I, I lived with my parents. There wasn't any sort of like going off with other guardians. And uh, I spent most of my time at home. I went to an inner city New York public high school, junior high, elementary school. So, and and in my school was predominantly uh, black and Latino and they didn't really care about this little white actor kid. I so was on the kept, basketball they kept team. They in line. So, it wasn't, yeah, yeah, my feet so, were on the ground. So you'd walk um, to the mall, walk through the mall and everyone would be like, oh my gosh, right. that's my real Josh life from is, Big. My real life is back in the Bronx and Harlem and it's a different story. I think that's um, a, like, that's a profound lesson because if oh, you yeah. can normalize your day-to-day life, even if you're recognized out at the mall, it's, it's when you're at school. Well, that, I- I was constantly telling my parents I should move to Orange County. I'm in. I'm a huge uh, star in Orange County. Here, <laughs> no one knows me. Um, but on the other side of it, I think that a lot of the obviously it is a complicated thing to deal with. But we only hear about the people who misfire, right? We only hear about the people who weren't able to the child stars who weren't able to kind of like handle that over time and. The truth is the general population has those problems as well. Like lots of people get into drugs and alcohol. Lots of people have trouble with the law, whether you're an actor or you're not an actor. Uh, It just so happens that their mistakes are broadcasted out into the world. Being this huge star at the age of 12, and then you're going through life and okay, people Mm -hmm. still remember me as Josh Baskin from big and that psychologically is that, is that anything you've ever had to deal with in terms of redefining who you are? Well, you constantly are figuring out the path that you're on. So look, you get a part in the movie big and the next, you know, you never stop working until you decide to stop working. So I, Stopped for a couple of years in high school, started again, then went to college, stopped for a couple of years and started again. But there's always somebody, you walk into a room in an audition and they get down to the bottom of your resume, the first thing you ever did. And they're like, wait a minute. And then you're always in play. So that's kind of cool. And it does give you access. I've never had a, 
it, it was just a gift. It was always a gift to me. And a gift in the sense where like, if I get on the subway, people will look at me and smile and nod. And they don't know where they know me from, but they think they went to camp with me or we went to school. So people are always walking up and smiling at me. That's a great way to go through life. No matter if you're not Tom Cruise, but there was something really important that my dad told me early on. And it's, and he said that particularly in the business, that there is no top of the mountain. Like Tom Hanks looks at Tom Cruise and says, I wish my movie still made a billion dollars. And Tom Cruise looks at Tom Hanks and says, I wish I had three Academy Awards. And so even at the top, the icons, the two Toms, right? They still are looking and saying, all right, there's more to do, right? So you, and also like you said, it ebbs and flows. Some years you're the cat's pajamas and some years you're not. But if you realize that the journey is really what's fun. The journey, your friendships, the people that actually care about you, correct. your family. And, 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 and the experiences that you're having. And in some cases, you know, when I still was an actor, the art really was what I grabbed onto. And those moments where you haven't worked, you haven't gotten a job in a year, and you're like, why am I doing this? Well, you know, I also would joined a small theater company and get up on stage whenever I could, you know, just to keep the muscles flexed. But the fascinating thing, and I don't want to perseverate on this because I want to get into this experiential part of life and yeah. adventure and all, all the other things that, that uh, you're here for today. But um, I've become somewhat passionate about, I'm about to be a father. I know you're a father mm. of a, you know, a young- I think I heard about this. Congratulations. And, and thank you very much. Yeah. And, and back at you. And instead of sitting you're here- gonna, You're going to see the difference between this picture and me? The, enjoy this while you got it, my friend. The only difference- look, 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 look right here. This is before and after child. David- I look 10 years no. older here. No, 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 no. Yeah. No, yeah. The, no the difference is- Botox, man. That's all you, all you need. That's is all you need to do. That's all we Damn. all need, right? Midlife. Something I've been talking a lot about with friends and I've been talking a lot about it with my wife because I'm in this industry now. I never expected to be. I was an ER doctor. It's all I, I never thought about being on TV. And, and now I'm, I love hosting the doctors. I, I love hosting this podcast because again, the journey and talking about things that matter. But in today's day and age, if you ask most kids, their their goal is to be famous. Their goal is not to do something really great that makes them famous. It is, I want to be famous like this person who has X million number of followers. And th that is the goal. I, I admire that you at that age, you're, you're a role model to show people that, look, you can be incredibly famous at the age of 12, 13, 14, but that ain't going to sustain you in life. You still, mm -hmm, you got to figure mm -hmm. out the journey. And well, I think finding important things that have, um, that matter beyond just whether or not, you know, how many followers you, you have, you know, the, the, the neat thing about my career looking back as an actor, every three or four years, there was something really interesting that came about, whether, you know, from big and then followed Newsies and then followed, uh, I did my first Broadway show and then um, ran this theater company. And then we did, 
I did some films and TV series. So there was always something fun that was happening, but, but I always was, I always allowed my other interests, like my hobbies to engage me. And I was lucky that I was able to, I had the flexibility that I could jump out and do interesting things along the way. So like I stopped acting because I just needed to recharge and I went, uh, to college and then left college to, to join this. Um, we were working with an environmental organization that was um, tracking uh, Mexican wolves on the border of Mexico and, and New Mexico. And we, I lived in forest service cabins and did this environmental work, which was extremely fulfilling and then realized, all right, well, let me go back now and, and get back into the business again. Cause I missed that. I missed New York and then did that. And then started building low income housing for a while in New York, uh, with a group of friends, we invested in, um, sort of Harlem was gentrifying and we wanted to make sure that there were, um, houses for people, for locals to stay. And so we built, um, a, a New York city building, which is insane. Like <laughs> my dad was like, Oh my gosh, this is crazy. What are you doing? So, but we, we got this group together and my dad ended up coming in and helping. And so there were all these little side things. I, I ran this theater company and, um, and one day my father reached out and said that his, uh, his, uh, business partner, his business partner's kid, who I had actually ridden back and forth to school on the school bus. He was a little younger than us. He was like this little shrimpy kid on the bus. And um, that he had written some, he had written uh, uh, 20 pages of music for a, a play at college. And would I listen to it because I had a theater company and, and could I help them? They were looking for financing. <clears throat> and so I was like, oh no, I'm going to like mess up my dad's business relationship. This kid's stuff is probably terrible. <laughs> but I went down. Uh, got uh, listen. He he and his college friends put it up, and I was like, "Oh my goodness, lock the doors! This is incredible." So then I went out and started like I used my connections of being in the business for twenty five years. To, you know, how can I be of service? I found three million bucks. I got the casting director of Rent to come and be our casting director. I worked uh, workshopped it for a while. Brought Spike Lee down in there. The kid's name was Lin Manuel Miranda. The, the play was in the Heights. We won the Tony for best musical. And then the, his next play was, was uh, Hamilton. So I was able to, like, I always allowed whatever interest I was never, I would get frustrated when people would try and hold me back mm -hmm. and, and say, you're the kid from big and that's all you've got. Right. right? So I would continue to, um, especially I think in, in, you know, in, in a world where, you know, we're, we're at a crossroads, I think, like we're almost talking about are humans going to survive much longer on this planet or is this planet going to be habitable for us much longer? So it's at a really neat time, neat. It's at a, it's a, an important time for, um, for us to really figure out what's, what we need to do. What, well, and, what, and it's, what's, uh, I think one of the things that I was excited to talk to you about are meaningful experiences and we can use whatever term you want, adventure. So one of the guiding principles for my whole life is a quote from Helen Keller, life is either a daring adventure or nothing. And obviously Helen Keller, deaf, blind, and yet she knew that she needed to she accomplished great things. Not and, be caged by that. Yes, yep. and exactly. But we're often caged by things quickly and unexpectedly. And and I think back to when I was in my early 20s and I really got into – I'm originally from Colorado and 
I was into whitewater kayaking and rock climbing and mountain biking. Mm -hmm. And I, I literally would wake up in the morning and go whitewater kayak and then ride my bike into the hospital, work my shift overnight and wake up the next day. And it was this, it was just, there was so much adventure, both outdoors and then, you know, 12 hours in the ER is an adventure. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Experiential adventure. But w what I, I wanted to talk to you about is you, uh, I did some studying, some background studying uh -oh. on you. That's what I, what I like to do because I love learning about people, what makes them tick. Four years ago, I started developing severe neck pain mm -hmm. and I had to stop doing all the things that filled my bucket, all of those adventures, the things that fill my bucket. And right. then I heard you say that you realized that, yes, you're a kid from the Bronx, right? Mm -hmm. But nature was always a big part of your life. And you realized that you hadn't been filling up that bucket that adventure bucket and adventures can mean a lot of different things mm -hmm, to a lot mm -hmm, of different people. Mm -hmm. Volunteering can be an adventure. Yeah. Creating low income housing can be an adventure. But as far as your most recent path into this adventurous world, you went on a pretty badass adventure. You went hardcore. Yeah. <laughs> you, you, went, you went for next level adventure. Yeah. We, tell me about that you're crossroads. Do it, do it big. Tell me about know? the crossroads where you decided... I need to get back to this element of adventure to fill my bucket. Well, I think uh, I, I've always had in my mind this alternate path where I didn't become an actor. I, so I grew up in New York, but spent my summers uh, with my cousins in Montana and Utah, mostly in Utah, but we had family land in Montana, and then my parents had a summer place that a friend of our a friend of ours lent us in Maine. And I always had this idea of like, oh, well, what if I had ended up like um, not being an actor and hanging with my cousins in Utah and going to school there? And what would that path have looked like? And it, they're much more sort of. Um, they have gardens. They go fishing and hunting and and. Uh, and they're active, they have boats, they go out on the lake all the time and they learned how to scuba dive. They're just, um, but they're also the type of people who know how to make things with their hands. Like they can rebuild a car, they build houses. Um, and that's the exact opposite of a New York actor. Uh, even to today, a Hollywood actor, like this was not anything that I had ever learned. And I sort of like watched from afar, particularly my grandfather, who was this towering figure. Um, he was a railroad worker in Montana and he could be like, I mean, he could pretty much do anything. Um, and so, so I started going to reminiscing about all of this when I was about to have a kid, like, what are the things you're going to do with your child? Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and the things that I kept remembering that brought joy from my childhood um, were things like apple picking or things like going fishing with my grandpa or we used to hike through the woods. I mean, one of the things my wife and I have a, a argue about is that California doesn't feel like there's something about the East Coast and probably Colorado, um, the woods. 
there's like moisture in the soil. The trees are like thick and in the air, you feel like you're outside. Here it's, you know, the, first of all- they Be careful if you take a deep breath, although it is a lot better than when I first came out here right, 12 years right. ago. I mean, when I first came out here, it, it was totally smoggy, but it's not only that, they've paved over a lot of stuff. Houses are right up against each other. There's a lot of real estate in this town. And, um, you know, the beach is really the one place- that you can go and feel like you're outside. Um, but in New York, uh, you're 15 minutes away from upstate. You get out of, you get out of the city and, and there's fresh air, there's trees. Um, so I really wanted to start doing that with my kids. So that was kind of like mulling underneath. That was like bubbling in there. And then- <laughs> Wait, which, <laughs> yeah, so I want to- do a few more walks in the woods. I, I you know, I really want to go ahead and get a fishing pole so I can fish with my, my kid. <laughs> but no, 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 no. That wasn't enough for David. <laughs> David goes big or goes home. There it is again. <laughs> so for people that don't know the adventure you went on, it, you know, just, just, quickly map out for them because everyone out there and I challenge people think about what would be your great adventure what would that look like for you and I can tell you right now mine is not as big as yours because <laughs> what you did is next level T tell us about from scratch this this adventure called from scratch yeah so it's called from scratch it's on FYI which used to be biography uh on 6 p.m on Sundays there's the pitch or there's the plug and basically what I do is I go to a chef or a home cook or a food truck and they give me a dish or meal and then I hunt, gather, grow, forage every ingredient and then come back to the chef and try and make it myself. And this is- And you're going all over the chefs world all to over do the this. World. Top chefs, but also it doesn't have to be like only Michelin star. It can be food stalls that- you know, with great food, um, home cooks. Like we're actually talking to my mom right now, trying to convince her to do the Thanksgiving episode, which would be like my home, my childhood Thanksgiving. Um, but she's uh, camera adverse. So we're still working on her at this point. But anyway, so yeah, I, I basically, um, there's nothing basic <laughs> about the show. It sounds like, oh, okay. Forge for some food, make a recipe. Great. Mm -hmm. That's adventurous, but come on. When you're talking about foraging, gathering, finding, I mean, you're, you were doing some crazy things. Yeah, we, we leaned into it. I mean, the, uh, in Iceland, we had to, we, we worked with these. So a huge section of Iceland, the West Fjords, um, there's no in industry. It's just seafood. So every, everybody earns their living out there in these little towns, uh, fishing and, uh, the country has basically, they wiped out their cod in the seventies and they killed a lot of their sharks. And then they realized that they were devastating the ocean. So they gave every single man, woman, and child and company on the Island, uh, an amount of permitted fishing. So everybody has a limit. Um, and so all the fish has come back. Um, the one thing is by hand, you can go, there's no limit to what you can do like by hand. So we put on, uh, you know, a dry suit, went into the fjords and I went, you know, in the Arctic fjords down there where seals, there are whales coming through in those fjords and I'm doing scalloping and mussels and clamming. And, uh, and I'm not a, like, I'm a, I've scuba dived a couple times, warm water, pretty fish, coral reef. This is completely different. This is like 
black. You can't see anything. You're down there like things are zipping by. You're like, what is this? And uh, there was a moment where my, um, I had this green bag that I'm putting stuff in. It's like a green net bag and I'm going further and further. And also I'm not good. I'm not a good scuba diver in general. So like I'm having to like stop and like, okay, you feel claustrophobic now count to 10, right? And then I'm going further and further and then something grabs my bag and I almost, so in dry suit, they, they have a button that fills your suit up that kind of like keep you buoyant, but you can press this button, fill your suit up and shoot to the top, but you get the bends and you die. So at that moment in time, I'm like stopping myself from shooting myself to the surface. And I look back expecting, you know, the leopard seal and my bag has gotten caught on a rock. So I slowly undo it. <laughs> and the, the diver looks back at me, thumbs up. And I was like, thumbs up. But in my mind, I almost killed myself in the most pathetic way. If you had pressed that button. If I had pressed that button, so. shot to the top, done. Um, so, and then in Sardinia, we went spearfishing for octopus and, uh, it was pretty rough out there. So we, we couldn't get any, well, we found one, but it was, it was pretty adorable. It was like a little one and the diver put it in my hand and it came up out of my hand and then sat here for a minute and changed three colors, squirted two little cute ink things at me. And I was like, I can't take that and smash that on the rocks and eat it. That just this would be horrible. So we got up top and I said, is there any alternative? Is there something else out here I can go for? Cause we're not finding these octopus. And he said, well, there are these sea anemones that we eat here. Um, they fry them with the dust them in flour, fry them up in the cold ojada and they're really good. So we said, okay, but it was getting too rough. He said, you can't bring the cameraman. We're going to drone. So we're going to drone this. I can, I'll go with you so I can keep my eyes on you. So we go back in this cove to try and get these sea anemones off the wall. And we're, you know, swimming, snorkeling, doing it. And then suddenly all the water kind of drains out of this cove. And we look up and sets of waves come in and I get tossed up on the rocks. And basically if he hadn't been a free diver who could hold his breath for five minutes, I would have died. He, he reached over, undid the weight belt. So it dropped to the bottom of the ocean and then started pushing and pulling me out of this cove as I'm like going up on the rocks with each passing wave. And when we get back to the, uh, to the boat, my crew looks at me and they're like, that was amazing. <laughs> I was like, and uh helen keller would be proud yeah. that's that's a daring adventure the maybe boat. maybe for the er doc a little too much um the boat after, ride back was very quiet me and the diver were like because we knew what went on like i turned to him and he saw in my eyes like i'm gonna die well no no adventure is worth dying for so no. i'm glad that you survived, survived that, that at, at the end of these adventures and again i i i think we all have a, a restlessness somewhere inside of us that that yearns for adventure and it can look different for everyone. This again is, is extreme because there are a couple instances where I know you were, you know, at death's doorstep, if you will, at the end of a day like that, you just call your wife up. Oh yeah, honey, this is great. Because you know, ultimately the show is about creating meals. Yeah. yeah. So but, but just, you don't have to go into, but what does your wife say after a day like that? Well, or she, does she not know that this all happened until I try, an episode I try not tell her, 
you know, I try and not tell her right away. She she hates any of the, like she thought when we first started, she was real stressed out about me climbing a coconut tree and getting coconuts. So like me almost being, you know, drowned in Sardinia, that was not even on the horizon for her. So I, I don't really tell her any of these things, but I also just told you the two most intense experiences. Um, there are incredible experiences where you are walking through woods looking for mushrooms, walking through woods looking for wild strawberries. Um, I'm harvesting wheat in wheat fields in Italy. I go to Philippines, learn how to harvest rice, mill it, turn it into um, this Filipino dessert. I mean, one of the incredible things, aside from this adventure, is there is something so fulfilling and joyous about the work, which we now, I mean, it's such thoughtless eating at this point. We, well, and the, and, we and get I, Postmates, we unwrap so a paper bag that. and we eat it. And there isn't any, there's no even conversation anymore. There's nobody sitting at the table with us or in our car with us while we're eating this. And so to jump back to this place where you're working hard all day to get this food and your body's starting to prep. Biologically, I feel like this is gonna taste really good. Your body's getting ready for what's about to come. And then at the end of the day, you cook with somebody and I share with my with my crew. Like it would be so sad if at the end of this, I just ate this by myself. Like everybody has to try. And one of the coolest moments, even cooler when I get to taste it, is when I step back, the meal is done, my crew puts down their cameras and everybody dives in and eats what we all spent the last week hunting and gathering, you know, and then eating together and discussing what, what this was like and the, remembering how we got this. Um, we, so how, how much did those experiences change the way you perceive food and the way most of us in our day-to-day -day lives consume food? Because I talk a lot about food as medicine and don't let food be your poison. And hey, mm -hmm. um, I haven't delved into it too much on the podcast, but hey, these are the things I eat and this is why I eat them. You mentioned even the octopus and you got the octopus there and you're realizing, oh my gosh, I can't like emotionally, I've become attached to this animal. I can't yeah. eat it. And yeah. and beyond that, you're you're in all these various countries and you're seeing how the world is and how you mentioned climate change earlier, how it's affecting the food yeah. sourcing. Yeah. How has that changed the way you view the food you put on your plate? And back to being a parent, as you, you know, as you parent, how, how you introduce that to your family? Well, so for me, it is, is a little, it's, it's kind of dramatic. Well, it feels dramatic for me. So I, um, I love beef. I love barbecue and burgers. And so one of the things I wanted to do was, um, sort of not be hypocritical. Right now I get all my meat wrapped in plastic or served at some restaurant and there's no relationship between the, you know, what I eat and the animal or, or no acknowledgement of the animal that was there. And we did some like just basic math where if I had five meals a week of some kind of beef product, which is nothing like, um, in a day when I was younger, I'd have a burger and a hot dog and mm -hmm. who, who knows. So if I only did that five meals out of the, the 21 meals more that I would eat in a week. And if I started that from when I was young, I would have killed or eaten over 11,000 cows, which is 
an incredible a number of animals. And that's not including chickens and pigs and fish. So if that was my reality, that I'm a meat eater and I like to eat meat, then I was, I'm going to slaughter a cow and see what that does. So we went down to Texas and um, slaughtered a cow. And A&E and I discussed sort of like how much we were going to show because we wanted to show really, you know, not in an exploitive way, but in a way where like everybody knows what exactly we're doing. Mm -hmm. um, and even worse than the sort of the butchery and the slaughter was me with the cow beforehand. Like I'm standing there outside of the pen and the cow knows. Like I may be, you know, putting a bit into it, but the cow would not look at me. The cow was looking down. And one of the sadder moments is this cow <laughs> was the same age as my kid at that time. They were both 18 months old. This was a calf, but it was a 1300 pound calf. So then I went in and, and we slaughtered it and I processed it down. And, um, and you're in there the whole time, you know, after you've killed it, you're like, oh, I just want to get out of here. This is horrible. And then, but each step of the way I have to do this. So we cut off the hooves and then it's still not great. And then you take off the skin and now you're starting to get to the place where you, this is the meat that you sort of know that hangs, you know, in the butcher shop. Um, but the residual effects of that, I mean, it was, um, it was horrible emotionally, just terrible. And the residual effects are that I now don't eat meat five days a week. I'm vegan five days a week. And I have two days where one day where I'm vegetarian and one day where I do eat meat. And what I realized was I still like it. I don't, I don't have a problem with people eating meat mm -hmm. um, because people have done it for a long time. But I do think that the way we, um, one, the way we think about animals, what we know about animals has changed over time since, you know, 10,000 years ago, we were like, these, these things are here for us to consume. And now we realize that these animals are smarter than we've thought in the past. You know, pigs are smarter than dogs and octopus are smarter than pigs. And some whales may have more of a thoughts than we do. Their brains are certainly bigger. And then, and the other side, you know, the way we raise them and, and how we raise them, you know, the cruelty level there has has changed. Uh, it used to be that animals, when they were running around in the wild, the worst day was the last day when we killed them. And now they're living in horrible conditions. Um, and so if I'm going to eat meat, I'm going to, it's going to be rare, rarely, not rare, not rare. Well, done. incidentally, really <laughs> but it's going to be rare. And, and for the record, that's yeah. the way a lot of cultures in the world still eat meat. Yeah. And these are the very healthy cultures where people live to be a hundred plus That's years, right. but they eat it as, as a treat. They don't yeah. rule it out yeah. and, and they, and they, they celebrate it and they, they celebrate even the animal, but it's, it's a and, treat. And, and we're it's actually in, a couple generations here in the United States away from that. My, 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 my grandfather, you know, it was a rare day where meat was in the center of the plate. Um, they just didn't have the money for it either, right? But now every meal of the meat, it's not a meal in America without meat in the center of the plate. So I eat it rarely now and it should be, I should pay money for it. It should be expensive. It should be good quality and the animals should be raised uh, humanely. And so those two things have changed. Yes. Yeah, and, so and, and, and beyond the humane ethical, element, right. it's... People always ask me from a health perspective, and if you're eating meat from an animal that lived a good life and ate what they're supposed to eat, and mm -hmm. actually that's going to be better quality for you and your health. And 
You know, it's interesting because I think back to when I was a kid. So I'm from the Midwest. Um, my, you know, I still go back to the family farm all the time in Nebraska. And my dad grew up a farmer. Um, my grandpa spent his entire life from, you know, probably the age of 19 on at the farm that we still have in the family. And I grew up eating meat at every single meal. And I never, but here's the irony. I would be there and I would always go do chores with, you know, my, my uncle Ron and my cousin Scott and my grandpa. And yet when we would go to the store and see the meat in packages as a little kid, total disconnect total disconnect. I did not have the capacity at that age to actually connect the two, even though, I mean, I, I think back and, and, you know, the trucks would come and, and the cattle would get on the, the trucks. And as a kid, this is just life. And in fairness, this is also the livelihood you know, my, they're farmers and this is how they survive. And so, and there's, I have so much respect for the getting back to the hard work and working the land and raising crops. And I have so much respect. And there were hogs and chickens and, you know, and I'll never forget my grandma taking me out back and showing me how to cut off a chicken's head mm -hmm. as, a, and again, I, at the time this was my normal, but I still would go to the store with my mom and we would get chicken and beef. And it was, to me, it wasn't, it didn't actually come from an animal. Right. You had and, to separate it in your mind. But what's crazy is I think a lot of us still have that disconnection. Oh, everybody does. And I mean, there's very few of us that, that do acknowledge where it comes from. And I, and I, I applaud you for showing that. And I, I think it's important to, I mean, we all have, different ways of eating. And I've always said that, you know, I'm, I'm not a huge fan of extreme, extreme diets where mm -hmm. people swear off everything. But, um, I, I rarely eat meat now. And at the, at our house we're we're, we eat, we're plant forward. Um, yeah, we yeah. do eat some fish in the house, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but we don't, I don't bring meat into the house. For me, it's a treat. If I'm out and I I want you to want eat a grass-fed yeah. burger, I'm mm -hmm. going to do it. I'm going to respect it, appreciate it, but it's a treat. And I and not only from a health perspective do I believe that's the healthiest way to eat, but it's it, I admit and here I am 48 years of age and it does feel better <laughs> than oh, when you're eating meat at every single meal and then realizing that wow, that's a lot of <laughs> that's and a lot of animals that and I feel that, like that eating that type of eating it's not like you're not experiencing it it's weird like I feel like people use it to zone out like over consuming uh, particularly meat it, it it does something where like people just uh go into this kind of like um brain dead sort of zone um and maybe it's to Maybe they have feelings that they're trying to hide in there or that, that this is an easy way to feel fulfilled in some kind of way that, um, but, uh, I, what I would want the show to show is that it is much more, um, interesting and exciting and fulfilling and healthy to go out to an apple farm and pick some apples with your family than 
uh, that is such an incredible, like people have asked me sort of, okay, how do people bring this back into their own lives? And I'm like, so my kid traveled with me. He, he jumped to a couple of the places while he was, cause I didn't want to miss his whole sort of like one to two year old existence. I'm glad that you were able to include. So he came and I think he couldn't walk. He could crawl, but he couldn't walk. And we sat him in a strawberry patch in Finland while I was, I was like filming over here. And so we need to put him down. So we put him down in the strawberry patch and he sat there and it blew his mind that he could take this fruit off of that plant and eat it. And he sat there for an hour, just crawling around and eating the berries. And even to today, well, first of all, strawberry became one of the first words he ever said. And even today, strawberry is his favorite food because I think there's some pathway was opened in his brain. And this is at his most human, like where he felt the most in control and happy was picking this fruit and eating it. Um, and so I recommend highly, like if you want to start on the path of, you don't have to dive for <laughs> sea scallops no, in not. Iceland. Like there's, you can go pumpkin, you know, at fall, go out and get pumpkins with your kids, go out and do, um, or do go fishing. Like, yeah. you know, go down to the Santa Monica pier. There's people out there all the time. And prior to doing this show, I would sit there and be like, oh, I should do that. Right. But I could never find the time in this life that I had created for myself. And whenever I felt uncomfortable, I would just create more things, right? As opposed to leaning into the stuff that makes us uh, human and whole. Um, life, life is short. Don't waste it not doing these things that mm -hmm. not only fill you up, but, but getting back to kids. And there are a lot of kids out there who've never walked through a field of strawberries or an apple orchard. And, you know, you're, I'm bringing, this is bringing back a flood of memories on my mom's side. My, my grandpa died before I was born, but my grandma lived alone in Iowa and she kept her entire backyard was all a garden. And so, and she canned all of her own vegetables. And so I ate real food growing up without realizing it. And I would go back there and my sister and I, we would go pick the berries mm. and we would just pop a few in our mouth and we'd run down the street in Grindy Center, Iowa. We'd go down to the local pharmacy and get a soda pop. And then we'd run back. And if we were still hungry, we would literally roll back into my grandma's backyard. Pick Is that a where few. you grew up in Iowa? So my mom grew up in Iowa. My dad grew up in Nebraska. And then I'm the kid who they, my dad was in sales and sold cattle feed. So- oh, wow. I went from, I mean, I was in Fort Collins, Colorado, Broomfield, Colorado, Wichita, Kansas, Edmond, mm. Oklahoma, Missouri. So I grew up all over the Midwest, but then the center of it was Iowa, Nebraska, because mm -hmm. that's where, you know, the family as a kid, that's were. where you always mm -hmm. go. And my dad was the, you know, the one in the family who went to Vietnam and was, a, he graduated. He, he's the guy that went to college and then went and kind of left. But when we would go home, uh, we would always, we'd go to Nebraska, we would go to Iowa and I had so much contact with the land. And also I never mm -hmm. knew, but, but being born in Colorado, you're, you're, you're as a kid, you're sitting there staring at mountains and it becomes such a cent central part of who you are without yeah. even knowing yeah. it. And, and I say that only because there is, there's this thirst 
that we all have, even if we don't realize we're thirsty and it's for these kinds of experiences. And it doesn't, like you said, it doesn't have to be extreme. It can be as simple as going to pick some, some apples yep. or, yep. um, plant a garden in your backyard, and, any of and that. Garden it. Yeah. And, and I, I applaud you for what you're doing with the show. And, and part of this is so personal for me because I've been literally over the last few weeks telling my wife over and I'm like, Paris, mm. I'm, I'm feeling burnt out. I'm feeling burnt out. I haven't done, I was like, I haven't done one thing that I can think of that's, that's, <laughs> I don't want to say quasi adventurous, but it's, again, I haven't even gone to pick an apple. Right. And, you know, when I was in med school in Charlottesville, there was an apple orchard over by where Thomas Jefferson, and we would go pick freaking apples as yeah, a break. To, yeah, yeah, yeah. And here, you know, you, I get home at the end of the day and I grab my phone and, you know, it's, it feels like, well, and, and nowadays if you go pick an apple, it's like, oh my gosh, let's get a picture of this. That's right. To, and <laughs> it's just all too much. So I, I love, I, I love that you're reminding people to get out there and, and remind yourself where your yeah. food's coming from. Before, before we close this mm -hmm. out and I'll let you go. I do think this is important. Uh, when I was in medical school and I, this became really important to me for some reason, but I, I realized he, how climate change was changing the world and human health. And this is a long time ago. I actually started a seminar called Human Health and Global Environmental Change. Wow. And in my fourth year of med school, a bunch of us who were interested in it, we, we, coordinated with with Harvard Medical School who gave the materials and here we are at UVA learning about all this human health global environmental change as humans we tend to only care about things that affect us mm. well this affects us in a big way and um before you go can you just touch upon some of your experiences in these I'll call them far off lands and yeah. how you've noticed how the climate evolving with higher temperatures, how it's affecting these people that you were meeting in their native lands, how it's affecting yeah. everything. The people who source our food, who bring our food to our table are on the front lines of uh, climate change. They're really dealing with it, whether it's, you know, farmers dealing with droughts or flooding or fishermen who the fish are moving because the water is warming up. Um, and at the same time, uh, we are taking so much fish out of the, out of the oceans. It's insane. Like, um, we met with one expert. So I didn't know any of this stuff before I went on the journey. I'm not an expert, but I talked to experts on the journey and this is what they've been telling me. Um, and so, you know, this guy who basically studies oceans, he said that we take what is the human weight of China out of the oceans and fish, uh, every year. And, um, and that technology wise, we've gotten to the point where the fish cannot escape. So it's really only up to us. We have to decide at what point we stop. Um, and you see it when you go out, like we went out into the South China Sea with these Filipino fishermen and they're doing battle with like huge Chinese and US trawlers. They've got one of these old sort of like bamboo boats and 4 million Filipinos get there, um, make their living based on the ocean and there's no fish left for them. This guy, we went out all night and didn't catch a fish and we talked to him and he was basically like, yeah, my father got 10 times the fish I got and his father got 10 times the fish he got. And so there really is. And then, then what occurs is there's no money left in these small towns on the coast. 
they move to the big city, impoverished, destabilizing, you know, the country. And that's occurring all over the place. Um, so we have to, we have to legislate. I mean, that's the only, like you walk it through and you're like, okay, will these companies change their ways? Maybe. Does, does what we do really affect? No. Like me stopping eating meat five days a week is not really where it's at. There's so much food waste. 40% of what we take in gets thrown away. Um, so there really needs to be legislation. And, but, and where you see that say, legislation- Just to challenge you really quickly. Well, no, hold on real quick. Where you see that legislation working is a place like Iceland, where they got to the brink of disaster, environmental disaster. And as a collective, the we, the they, changed- their government's policies to recognize this. And it changed the cod there, like literally. And then the US borrowed that idea in the Northeast because we killed our cod and Obama put it in, he put permits. They started paying fishermen not to go out during certain seasons. And now we have the Atlantic cod is back. Um, so yes. Well, I, I do. I, I think it's, and I've, Go for here it. I am a kid who is learning to be a doctor. I'm recycling everything before it's cool. And I'm, I mean, I was, I was the guy Yeah. and it almost feels now like we've, we've gone backwards a little bit, but where I, where I, oh, was, we, where we I do think we, what we do matters. <laughs> I do. I, I think the actions of each individual, obviously very minimal, but the action and, and, I said when I'm starting this podcast, I'm I'm okay going political. I'm not going to say I'm not going Republican versus Democrat. Right. But what I will say, from a purely human health perspective, if you care about your life, your health, your kids' health, your kids' kids' health, then the one way we can change is I don't care again whether it's a Republican or a Democrat. But it, I I would never vote for someone who denies that there's climate change going on yeah. because it's science and science we see is it. California's yeah. burning. Like, and, uh, it's, it, it, uh, you know, it, you see these hurricanes <laughs> and that's my, that's my whole point. And, yeah. and I don't, I hate getting on a so pulpit, I, so but I, it's, it's, it's hard for me when I hear people who are making <sighs> claims that it, that, Oh no, yeah. the world is not warming. Yeah. It is. Yeah. It, it's warming. Well, and it, and it's a very scary thing when it comes to, if we, if we want as a species to stay on this planet, we we all have to, you know, again, I don't care who you vote for, but I would think twice before you vote for someone who says, oh, oh that's completely. all, that's all ridiculous. The planet's not changing. I think that's it's a great true. way to put it. I think like, you know, there are just some things that are real and when you can't vote for people who are just pretending that it isn't occurring because then it's too convenient. It's convenient to say it's not occurring. Um, you know, and, and these people that say that they may not care about their kids or their grandkids, but if you care about them, you know, it's, and that's, it, it's weird to me, quite so, frankly, that, that, that some people don't, they, they, they don't seem to care that much about their kids future right, right. because, Hey, you may have it good right now, but just wait and see. There's an interesting thing that you said earlier, and, and I just want to, talk about it because I think all of this stuff is kind of interrelated and you see it, you start to see the connections as you're out there. One is that everyone is connected when you're dealing with food. Like everyone, Americans kind of think like, oh, I made this on my own. I'm, I'm you know, self-made man. Even the slice of pizza that we eat 
80 people were behind that. And I see it when I go and I make the pizza. So you see this web of community. Um, number two, there is a direct relationship with like people doing kind of bad things or things that they have to like, you know, they have to make a living, right? So they have to make a living doing something that isn't necessarily for the best. Um, you know, so I think that people who who make who make our food, who source our food, need to get paid more, which is something I saw. Like who source our food the right way. Yeah, who source our food the right way. Um and and you 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 start to learn that like, oh, if someone has to you know, they're going to either going to starve or they're gonna, they have to fish as much as they can, right? To stop from starving. They're going to fish as much as they can. They're going to take in as much. And then they're going to tell us, well, I just need to put food on my table for my family, right? But if that person doesn't have to worry about, you know, losing their house because their farm, right? They're going to, they're going to be able to take the time to do it right. They're going to be able to get, they're, they're not going to have to worry about. Um, so, so anyway, so one of those things that we learned along the way is that there are lots of jobs that people all agree those people need to get paid more teachers and nurses and and the people who bring our food to our table is one of those jobs and that will also help um in this sort of like downward spiral that we need to stop yeah um, i agree and yeah. and it is a big problem <laughs> Sorry, but there's also do, a lot do, of adventure and fun it. on my show. Well, and, and, and <laughs> my and publicists again. are like, "Why does it sound like?" Because my show really is adventurous and fun. We we do put the medicine in the ice cream. We we do talk about interesting deep things. But, but the beauty of but that's the beauty of it. it's from scratch. And yeah. and I think that 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 whole concept is a brilliant one. And um, I encourage everyone to check it out. Really great. Thank you. Hanging this out with you deep, for, I like this. We, you know, I like we, this. We went deep. It happened. <laughs> How do people watch it? It's on Sunday nights at six on FYI. I thank everyone so much for tuning in. As always, subscribe and download and tell your friends. I would love to build this community. And by the end of this podcast, by the end of it all, we're going to have this life figured out. Peace. The Travis Stork Show podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only and is not intended as a replacement or substitution for any professional, medical, financial, legal, or other advice, diagnosis, or treatment. This podcast does not constitute the practice of medicine or any other professional service. The use of any information provided during this podcast is at the listener's own risk. For medical or other advice appropriate to your specific situation, please consult a physician or other trained professional.